welcome to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about our one reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here's Roberta. Welcome to Seek Reality. I'm Roberta Grimes and I'm so happy you're with us today. In all our nearly 10 years, believe it or not, of being together, my dear Seek Reality friends, while we have explored the ever more thrilling fact that our lives really are eternal, and while we've sought ever more perfect ways to interact with spirit, still, once in a while, it seems important for us to just have a little fun with all of this, maybe even do something downright spooky. And since it is the Halloween season, who better to do something downright spooky with than our wonderful and downright spooky friend, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer. Mark was with us in February to talk about his new book, which was then just out, I think, or had been up for just a little while. It's called The Afterlife Frequency, The Scientific Proof of Spiritual Contact and How That Awareness Will Change Your Life. Mark's previous books, of course, are Never Letting Go and Evidence of Eternity. He also co-hosts the live stream TV show, The Psychic and the Doc, and he's a regular columnist for Best Holistic Life magazine. So when Mark Anthony, Anthony was here earlier this year, he said, hey, happy back for Halloween and we'll do a downright spooky Halloween show. And I said, oh, Mark, you are on. Recently, he told me we were going to be talking about the curse of King Tut's tomb. So to get in the mood last night, I confess I did watch Steve Martin's King Tut SNL skit from the 70s. So now I am right in the King Tut mood. This is Mark Anthony's sixth visit with us. And he is always such a wonderful, knowledgeable, and really entertaining Seek Reality guest. I can't wait to see what he has in store for us today. Mark, welcome. I am so happy to have you back with us. Thank you, Roberta. I always enjoy working with you. You're like my sister from another mister. I mean, we just <laughs> we just connect and we have so much fun. Um, and I think it's important for for those of us like, like yourself and me and our colleagues who study the afterlife to present it in a credible scientific and even entertaining fashion, because this is a very, very important thing for people to understand. And, and it's important to have a little fun with it because it's true. It's all true, but it's not dour. It's not it's not a downer. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's an upper. It turns what, it, I mean, life would be, life sucks, then you die, basically. But it turns all of that into joy. And we can have fun with it. We really can have fun with it, as as Steve does on that wonderful SNL skit. So what do you have with us? I'm dying to hear this. Part well, expression. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> right. Well, Egyptology has been one of my passions. Uh, the media tends to uh, enjoy giving me labels. Uh, when I first went public with my abilities as a psychic medium, someone who can communicate with spirits, the medium referred to me as the psychic lawyer because I, at the time I was practicing law. And then I've appeared on several TV and radio shows talking about ancient mysteries and supernatural phenomenon. And then I got nicknamed the Psychic Explorer. Um, and I, I think my favorite moniker so far, uh, Roberta, was uh, one outlet called me the Psychic Indiana Jones. So, hey, thank you. Thank I you for it. that. But King Tut's tomb is really fascinating. And it's also very timely because it is now the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Wow. Yeah. In November 4th, 1922. But let me give you a little bit of backstory here. The archaeologist who was devoted his life to searching for King Tut's tomb, his name was Howard Carter. And he was um, in his early 50s when he made the discovery, but he showed up in Egypt nearly, uh, you know, when he was a teenager, so like 35 plus years before. 
And he had no college degree, but he was a very accomplished artist. So he started working for esteemed archaeologists of the day, British archaeologists, drawing diagrams of tombs and the paintings in the tombs that that, that had been uh, discovered. So he learned how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs, and he worked his way up through the ranks. And so he was an extremely accomplished archaeologist. And he attracted the attention of Lord Carnarvon, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon from England. And uh, uh, Lord Carnarvon used to spend his winters in Egypt uh, because he had some some issues, some health problems. He may have had uh, a real bad asthma, and the dry climate of Egypt really agreed with him. And he made an acquaintance with Howard Carter. And Carter explained to him that all these Egyptologists had failed to find this one tomb, the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Now, Howard Carter was so focused on this. He wanted to succeed where everyone else had failed. Here's what's fascinating about his benefactor, Lord Carnarvon. So he agreed to fund the expedition. Everyone, all of your listeners, I bet Roberta, know where Lord Carnarvon lived, or at least they would recognize his home in England. He came from High Clare Castle. But High Clare Castle is where Downton Abbey is filmed. Oh, really? Yes, it is. And in fact, Lord Carnarvon's great, uh, I think it's his great-great-grandson, the eighth Earl of Carnarvon, is still in residence there, still holds the aristocratic title. And um, a lot of British aristocrats lost their big manor houses because, you know, it costs a lot of money to to run something like this. Oh, yeah. And and but BBC was picking up the tab when they started filming uh, Downton Abbey. I think it had seven seasons. And they've had two movies. And I understand a third is under consideration. And all the scenes with the aristocrats are f- actually filmed inside Downton Abbey. But the scenes with the servants, which take place in the story below ground in the basement, are filmed in a in a uh, movie studio in England. Now, why do you think that is? Why? <laughs> it is rumored that the Carnarvon family's private Egyptian collection is in the basement of High Clare Castle, so it's off limits. Ooh, how fascinating. <laughs> Lord Carnarvon, all right, warping back to, to the early part of the 1900s, Lord Carnarvon was an um, amateur Egyptologist, and Howard Carter said, I will succeed where others have failed. And so he began his search in what is known as the Valley of the Kings. For the listeners who may not be familiar with with the time sequencing, a lot of people think everything in Egypt is about the pyramids. And the pyramids are amazing and fantastic structures. And according to archaeology, they were built in the fourth dynasty, Egypt's fourth dynasty, which was 2,500 years B.C. So we're talking 45 centuries ago. King Tutankhamun was a king in Egypt's 18th dynasty, and he died roughly around 1300 B.C., so that's 33 centuries ago. Think of it this way. Almost as much time passed between the construction of the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau near Cairo and the burial of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings farther south, almost as much time passed between those two events as passed between the birth of Jesus and the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. Oh, my goodness. That's a long period of time. And then Egypt's oh, yeah. most famous ruler, Cleopatra, actually Cleopatra the Seventh. There were seven Queen Cleopatras, um, and we're thinking of the Elizabeth Taylor version. <laughs> okay, um, she came along thirteen centuries after Tutankhamun. So when you start looking at that, we're dealing with something—a um, uh, burial 
that occurred 3,300 years ago. Now 34, because uh, we're we're 100 years out from from Howard Carter. Good heavens. So Carter was, and it's funny when you're, we were talking about uh, Steve Martin, Steve Martin's a genius, um, not just comedically, but musically. And when you listen to him and he, he discusses things, he's an absolutely brilliant man. And right. sometimes geniuses tend to be very short tempered with people that can't keep up with them. Howard Carter was absolutely no exception. He had no patience for what he considered to be stupid people. He couldn't stand reporters. He hated idiotic questions. And he preferred to do his work and not be in the limelight. Well, Carnarvon had funded an expedition. It had been over 10 years now. Um, and World War I delayed things, which ran from 1914, basically, to the peace treaty in 1919. And after World War I, Carter resumed work. And there's 100 laborers. This is a very big, very expensive expedition. Carnarvon was frustrated because nothing had turned up. Carter's digging everywhere, searching everywhere in the Valley of the Kings. And he said, that's it. I'm cutting funding. Carter begs him, one more season, please. So begrudgingly, the Earl of Carnarvon agreed to just one more season. Carter knew that time was running out. His patients were running thin. And he lived in this house a couple miles away from the Valley of the Kings. He rented this house. He had, you know, Egyptian staff. And he was rude and nasty to everybody. And his staff was used to him being a real pain. And one day, Carter was at a bazaar. And he saw this beautiful little canary in this golden cage, and he bought it. And so he kept this canary in a cage at, at his house, and his servants noticed that the canary would sing and it would calm Carter down, and the canary became the mascot of the expedition. They called it the Expedition of the Golden Bird. In fact, one of his servants said, um, "In uh, God willing, this bird will help us discover a tomb full of gold. So, you know, this was sort of a thing, and everybody was happy that Carter finally had this bird that calmed him down. And it was the morning of November 4th, 1922. Carter lurches awake before, before the sunrise. He knows he's got to get out to, to the dig. His, his uh, canary wakes him up, cheerfully chirping. And when he arrives at the dig, nothing's happening. Everyone's standing around. And at first he was really angry. And then he realized either somebody had been killed or they found something. And one of the workers, the foreman, ran up to him and said, you know, Mr. Carter, we, we found something. They brought him to a site. And what was fascinating about this, Roberta? It was not very far from another pharaoh's tomb, Ramses VI, and they had actually started their initial dig over a decade before in this very area, but decided to move to a different location. They uncovered a step in the sand, and the workers feverishly started working, and they covered another step and another, and then they found 16 steps leading down into the earth. Carter is thinking, well, this might be a tomb. It could be what's known as a cache because there were other areas. Uh, a cache is basically a storage um, storage facility that the Egyptians would use to, to put, you know, pottery and, and uh, mummy cloth and some other things in there. <clears throat> and then Carter is also thinking, well, every one of the other tombs, there was at least 60 tombs in the Valley of the Kings, and all of them were empty. They've been discovered by other archaeologists. And the reason that they were empty is because they've been plundered by grave robbers in ancient times. So it's just steps, right? Dig well, randomly in the sand, and there are steps going down? Yes, they found a stone staircase leading straight down into the earth. And Carter's okay. thinking... Well, we, we're going to find another empty tomb, and then they start. Un, they come up to a doorway uh, at the bottom of the 16th step, and they clear it. And Carter's heart almost stops, Roberta, because 
this ancient wooden door. It's two doors that, that, you know, open up. It's like, like French doors, but you know, Egyptian doors. Yeah. <laughs> and the handles wow. were uh, and connecting the two handles was a circular clay seal that was intact. And Carter wow. couldn't believe his eyes because all the other tombs in the Valley of the Kings, there were no seals because they'd been broken thousands of years ago and plundered by grave robbers. And on that seal was the symbol Tutankhamun. So oh, Carter, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Carter is like uh, losing it. So he immediately gets armed guards to protect the tomb. And he's got to get back to to uh, to town because he has to send a telegraph notifying Lord Carnarvon. Meanwhile, just as this had happened back at Carter's house, the servants in, in uh, Carter's home heard a, a terrible screech and they ran into the living room and they saw that a cobra had gotten into the cage with oh, a no. little canary and was devouring the canary. Oh. Oh. And it, yeah, and the servants were horrified. And also being Egyptians, they realized that the cobra was the symbol of the pharaohs. And this was a oh. very, very bad omen. Oh, no. And the superstition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is like, okay. Uh, the symbol of the, the pharaohs has devoured the mascot of the expedition of the golden bird. So these rumors start oh. spreading like wildfire. Meanwhile, oh, no. <laughs> at Highclere Castle, a.k.a. Downton Abbey, Lord Carnarvon and his daughter, Lady Evelyn, whom, if you look and study about Lady Evelyn, I'm pretty sure that Julian Fellows and the writers of Downton Abbey based Lady Mary, uh, the actress Michelle Dockery, who does a great job playing uh -huh. Lady Mary. I think they modeled Lady Mary after uh, Lady Evelyn. Oh, he my is, goodness. <laughs> he's excited because he hears great discovery made. Well, three weeks later, he's in Egypt with with uh, Lady Evelyn. I mean, he didn't hop on a plane then and fly. Plus, he's he's a a, a great British lord, and you can't just you know hop off uh, on yeah. on a boat and leave your castle. You got to make arrangements. Anyway, it's November twenty sixth, nineteen twenty two. An excited Lord Carnarvon and uh, and Lady Evelyn stood with Howard Carter at the entrance to the tomb, and after they opened the first door because they waited to break the seal or remove the seal carefully. And they found there was a, a 30 foot long hallway, which had to be cleared of debris. There was all sorts of stuff in there, took in uh, most of the day. And then there was a second sealed door. Carter made a small hole in the upper left corner of the doorway. And he held up a candle to test the air inside. And they were astonished because the flame fluttered in the escaping hot air, which oddly, Roberta, smelled faintly of perfume and coconut oil. Wow. And, and, and Carter, you know, realized that nobody had smelled this for 33 centuries. Now, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to read this. Um, this is an excerpt from from Carter's own book. He described what happened next for the moment. An eternity, it must have seemed to the other standing by. I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words. Yes, wonderful things. So then wow. Lord, Lord Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn took a look and they, their jaws dropped because looking through this hole, everywhere was the glimmer of gold. The room they peered into was packed with chariots, statues, game boards, linens, jewelry, beds, couches, chairs, even a throne, all piled up one on top of the other. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. Wow. This, and this began a 10-year project. Carter immediately assembled the best archaeologists in, in, in the world. 
uh, from the Metropolitan Museum um, of Art in New York City and got their photographer. He got a team from the British Museum, from the Louvre. He got German archaeologists. He brought the best of the best there. And it took them 10 years to get everything out of the tomb because they very meticulously numbered each object, photographed it where it was, um, made sure. And it was, they said it was terrible because a couple times they, when they found some clothing and they were just, oh, wow, clothing worn by a pharaoh, when they touched it, it disintegrated into dust. Because oh, you're was, kidding. That's terrible. It, well, they were like freaking out like, oh, my God. Well, it'd been sitting there, I mean, for for 3000 years. And what's really amazing is that over 5000 objects were found inside the tomb. And there were several rooms in the tomb. Um, I think there was like like five different rooms. But then when they got to there was one area they called the annex, uh, one that they called uh, the treasury, and then of course there was the the burial crypt of of the king. And so they approached this enormous pink sarcophagus, granite sarcophagus, and they noticed that there was a crack across the center of it. It was over thousands of years with you know temperature shifts and all that. The sarcophagus cracked, and so they used heavy. Um, um, tools and winches. They developed a very elaborate system um, of levers to to pull open the, the granite sarcophagus's uh, a lid and get it out of there. And then there was a great wooden coffin inside. And when they lifted it, they couldn't understand why it was so heavy. And they opened it up and there was it was the first of three coffins all shaped like a human. And they were the the wooden coffins were gilded with gold, but the innermost coffin, Roberta, was solid gold. Yeah, that's the one we're familiar with. Wow. Well, we're not even there yet. This is the coffin. This is the coffin, not the death mask on the mummy inside. Oh. So the innermost coffin and pictures of it are it's just so beautiful. The 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 uh artisanship. Uh, it was magnificent. And that's why three coffins were so heavy, 250 pounds of solid gold. So then they open up that coffin, they see the king's mummy, and on the king's mummy is the famous death mask. That's the one we're all familiar oh, with. Yes. And yes, it's definitely one of the most recognizable symbols of ancient Egypt. Carter was blown away. Nobody had ever imagined anything on this scale. But the most disturbing discovery in the tomb, two mummified fetuses believed to be twins. What was this? They had no idea anything like this. And Tutankhamun was only a teenager when he died. He became king when he was about nine years old and died around age 19. They realized that his half-sister, Anka Sanaman, was his, his wife. So he'd been married, because that was very, that, that was what the Egyptian that's what, that's pharaohs That's the way did. they did it back then, yes. They married their sisters. Right. And so, and the question was, well, who are these fetuses? And in recent years, DNA testing indicates that they were, uh, it looks like Tutankhamun was the father. Uh, because yes. they were wondering, was there a more sinister explanation? Is this some weird human sacrificial rite? But on further examination of the king's mummy, he was definitely the byproduct of inbreeding because he was physically deformed. He had a severe club foot. He had many, um, many physical uh, ailments. Um there was dozens of walking sticks in the tomb. He suffered from painful orthopedic conditions. There's evidence of Kohler's disease, which is an avascular bone necrosis, which causes poor blood supply in the bones of children. Then the heart was missing. And this is highly unusual for um, a mummy's heart to be missing because the Egyptians considered the heart the most important organ and believed it controlled intellect, personality, and memory. So hearts were removed separately wrapped and then placed in the heart cavity. Why was the heart missing? This was huge. 
Um, a, a CAT scan done in recent years in 2005 showed massive damage to the body, which indicated some type of violent death. But what type of violent death? Was it murder? Was it an accident? Many Egyptologists theorize he could have been killed maybe in a chariot accident, maybe he fell out of a chariot. Then there's evidence he had malaria, pneumonia, and very possibly sickle cell anemia. But oh. the yeah, this this poor kid, I mean, yeah, he may have been Pharaoh and quote unquote God on earth, but um, he was horribly deformed. And the going theory is that Tutankhamun died from an infection caused by a fracture in his left thigh bone. So how did he get that? Was that from an accident? So there's more mysteries coming out of this. My, I had understood that he was that he was killed in a chariot accident. I don't know where I ever got that, but that was what I had understood. That, that's the latest theory, but we'll get back to that in a minute. So what about this so-called curse of King Tut's tomb? Oh, yeah. Talk about that. All right. Let's warp back in time now to 1922. This is the biggest news story in the world reporters oh my gosh european american south american asian report every news outlet in the world was there and this is in the day of black and white photography and people actually writing things on paper okay this is the the golden age of print reporting and the thing about tutankhamun's tomb this happened in 1922. You ever notice, Roberta, when, when was the heyday of the Art Deco movement? I don't know. You tell me. The 1920s. If, um, if you look at like the Chrysler Building in New York City, a beautiful uh -huh. example of Art Deco. South right. Beach, Miami, beautiful. Uh, South Beach, Miami is probably the most, uh, uh, the largest and most beautiful collection of Art Deco uh, architecture in the world. Right. Well, well, yes. all these artifacts that were photographed impacted pop culture. And so the Art Deco movement, architecture, design, artwork, all took on a very Egyptian flavor. And that's why you see a lot of uh, that type of, of look with the flappers and their costumes and right. uh, the statue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Tutankhamun, yeah, he was just like, this is huge. Yeah, yes. Poor. Poor suffering kid who died and was, uh, you know, um, uh, considered an insignificant pharaoh. But Howard Carter loathed the media. They're all taking pictures of him, trying to ask him questions, and he couldn't stand them. Lord Carnarvon, on the other hand, he was an attention sponge, and he just loved it. So he said, Carter, you handle the archaeology. I will handle the media. Well, the, the problem is he thought he'd make um, uh, a fast buck off of things. So he sold the exclusive rights to the story to the London Times for a very handsome sum. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think that did to all the other media outlets, Roberta? Oh, gee. Oh, I can't imagine. They were furious. They were cut completely out of the loop. Well, meanwhile, rumors were circulating about the cobra, the symbol of the pharaohs, swallowing the canary, the mascot of the expedition, because the reporters are out everywhere. They're talking to everybody. And then one reporter found their angle, not only the evil omen of the cobra, but one of them fabricated a story about a clay tablet found in the tomb with a curse written in hieroglyphs that said, death will slay with his wings, oh. whoever disturbs the Pharaoh's peace. Oh, my goodness. And, and so that didn't exist, that tablet? Uh, I hate to use this term, but this is totally fake news. <laughs> <laughs> You're, are you serious? But it gets even better. All right, so we have the uh, cobra eating the canary, evil omen. Now we have supposedly the curse of, of the tomb. But then the shocker came in April 1923 when Lord Carnarvon died at age 56 in a Cairo hotel. He was suffering from an infection caused by a mosquito bite on his face. And at the precise moment of his death, all the lights in Cairo 
flickered and went oh out. So now the superstitious oh, Egyptians wow. and the news hungry reporters had their angle, but it didn't stop there. Oh, <laughs> because oh. suddenly dozens of people who'd been involved in the excavation started dying, many of them under mysterious circumstances. And American tycoon George J. Gould, British industrialist Joe Wolfe, and two British aristocrats, Mervyn Herbert and Richard Bethel, all were some of the dignitaries that visited, and they died shortly after visiting the tomb. Bethel's father, Lord Westbury, jumped from a window to his death. His suicide note read, I can't stand any more horrors. Oh, so he killed himself. He killed himself because his son died after visiting the tomb, plus several other of his aristocratic friends. And then during his funeral procession, the hearse ran over and killed an eight-year-old boy. Oh, my goodness. So people were dying, Roberta, and stories of Tut's. Yeah, revenge. They stole his gold. Yeah, people were dying, and stories of Tut's curse were flying. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. The media was having a field day. I mean, they were loving it every time another uh, British aristocrat or American millionaire dropped dead, but also some of the workers were dying. And then all sorts of theories started percolating to the top. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes, and by the way, a psychic medium, suggested that the priests of ancient Egypt had conjured elementals, non-human spirits, to guard the tomb. Oh my goodness. Other other theories circulated that the Egyptians coated objects in the tomb with long-lasting poisons lethal microbes, toxic spores, and even radioactive uranium. Oh, gee. And now it's all over the world because they took that, that those objects out of the tomb. And now, right. and, and now it's even in probably the people who, who acted in Downton Abbey. Who knows? Who, are we watching their health? I don't know. Um, but they all seem to be fine. They're all chomping at the bit to do another movie. But the thing is, we also have to keep in mind. Now, let's let's bring in the science here. This was also Egypt in the 1920s. It's not like disease was an unknown thing. Uh, antibiotics would not even be on the scene for another two decades. But by the 1930s, when talkies, talking movies came, um, Universal Studios put out The Mummy. <laughs> Remember the mummy. those old, yeah, The Mummy. <laughs> so, you know, now they have hyperactive mummies jumping up out of the tomb and murdering everyone who disturbs their peace. So, you know, between the Art Deco oh. movement and the horror movies by oh. Universal Studios and unscrupulous oh. reporters, man, the Curse of King's Tut was all over the place. It was. But it oh was. But don't you think the evil spirits and the curse would have really had it out for one person in particular? And who might that person be, Roberta? I cannot imagine. I'm dying to find out, though. Art Carter, the lead archaeologist. Don't you think the the curse would, I mean, yeah, it struck down Lord Carnarvon, the guy writing the checks to fund the expedition, but the lead yeah. archaeologist, Howard Carter, actually died peacefully in England in 1939. And he apparently was spared the wrath of the curse. Then again, despite his great discovery, Carter suffered from depression. He would go into these morbose depression bouts. And even though he was the most famous Egyptologist of all times, he was snubbed by British academia for not having university credentials. And perhaps Carter's <laughs> biggest curse was the constant media attention that he absolutely hated. And oh, when he, he did was give cursed too. He, he was cursed too. <laughs> but <laughs> but they but he was actually he agreed to an interview about the curse and and here's what he said uh you know one of the uh, reporters said so Mr. Carter the curse of King King Tut and he couldn't stand it when they said King Tut you know it was Tutankhamun he couldn't stand the media <laughs> calling him King Tut and here's his response to the curse Tommy Rot 
The sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect and awe, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions. Oh, gee. <laughs> well, that, so that was his particular curse. He had to live with it all. That's a different kind of curse altogether, but a curse all the same. A curse all the same. And I mean, he was offered speaking engagements all over, but when he would meet academics, they would, you know, put their noses up to him. Oh, he never attended college. Well, did it matter? He was persistent. He was patient. He was ruthless, obsessive. I think if we had to do a diagnosis on, on Howard Carter, I think obsessive compulsive disorder. Yes. Would, you would, Clearly yeah. So. Clearly but on so. the, but on the other hand, he succeeded where dozens of very esteemed archaeologists had failed. He never gave up. He put his mind to the task, and he was resolved to find the tomb of Tutankhamun, and he did. He did. And wow, what a discovery. Oh, my. Well, more mysteries have arisen from the tomb of Tutankhamun. There's the speculation over how he died. Was it a chariot accident, like you you very, very astutely uh, pointed out? Was it murder? <clears throat> now, why would it be murder? The fascinating thing is what his widow, Anka Sanaman, did in the wake of his death. So here's Tutankhamun, 19 years old, and his bride, she could be anywhere from 16 to maybe 20 years old. She writes a letter, not just one, but two letters to the king of the Hittites. Now, the Hittites were a very powerful empire based in what is now modern-day Turkey. And we know that she wrote these letters because back in the early part of the 20th century, the Hittite capital of Hattusis was, was excavated, it was discovered, and they found their, their hall of records. They found two letters from a widow of the king of Egypt. And the first one said, I, my husband is dead. I have no son. I will not be forced to marry a servant. Send me one of your sons so that he may be king of Egypt. Well, the, the king of the Hittites was very suspicious, and basically he, he wrote back, and they have his response, which essentially said, well, I'm not sure I can trust you. And she sent another letter to him, basically reiterating that. Well, he did agree to send one of his sons. So the idea was that Anka Sanaman would marry a Hittite prince, and because he married her, he would then become the pharaoh of Egypt. Meanwhile, the Grand Vizier, whose name was I, it's spelled A-Y, he was old enough to be her grandfather. And then there was the um, lead general, Horemhab. They didn't want this to happen. Now, I'm speculating here, but here's what we do know. The Hittite prince never made it to Egypt. It appears that he was murdered on the way there. Because it was a long journey. Today, it still is. But even then. And... Was he murdered by the Egyptians? The evidence that would tend to indicate that he was is because this tipped off a 20-year war between oh. Egypt and the Hittite Empire. Golly. Then what we do know is that Anka Sanaman married I. She was forced to marry a servant, the Grand Vizier, basically the prime minister. Old enough to be her grandfather? old enough to be her grandfather. So now he becomes Pharaoh, not for very long, but here's another piece of the mysterious puzzle. His tomb was excavated. Of course, it had been plundered, and he is painted on the walls in full regalia as Pharaoh I, and he had, I think, at least two other wives, and there's not one mention of Anka Sanaman. Her tomb has never been found. Her mummy has never been found. She disappears from history without a trace, as does the rest of Tutankhamun's family. His entire dynasty is eliminated. I rules for a few years, and then when he dies, 
General Horemhab becomes Pharaoh, seizes power. So those of us that uh, are looking at all, all these things, there was a lot going on. And the motivations to get rid of Tutankhamun's family lie with Tutankhamun's father. His, he's known to history as Akhenaten. And he, right. yeah, and he was the pharaoh who believed in one God. Um, he's considered maybe the first monotheist in history, and he believed in the sun as the source of all uh, divinity and power. And it wasn't just the Egyptian god Ra, it was Atan Ra, and a specific aspect, the spiritual aspects of light as power. But he was a bit of a, not a bit, he was a, definitely a religious fanatic, because this was his god. And this God spoke to him directly. And when he switched the religion to this monotheistic belief, he also cut the funding for all the temples in Egypt. Essentially, what he did is he um, stopped, stopped funding all of the ancient Egyptian religions, a religion. So all the priests in Egypt hated him. And the priests were the ones that ran the country, pretty much. So he was hated by the priests. He was hated by the military because he would not stand up against the Hittites. And then um, when he died, and he ruled about 19 years or so, maybe 20 years, but, but and his mummy has actually been found. And it was a great debate over who this mummy was. He was found in, I think it was KV, Kings Valley 55, or I think it was 55 or 57, because they number each of the tombs there. But... Um, Basically, the aristocracy of Egypt, the religious um, rulers of Egypt and the military wanted that dynasty out of there. And so they had every motivation to murder Tutankhamun, use his wife to put their man on the throne, restore the ancient religion, and get rid of what was left of the dynasty. Now, we have no direct proof that any of this happened. But the circumstantial evidence, and I know you know how important that is, Roberta, is definitely there. No, I, I mean, I've not, that all strikes me as very sensible. Um, they, they hated all of those people because they, the, uh, the priests, uh, uh, I'm sure they would have wanted to get rid of all of them. That whole dynasty was tainted by, by. Um, Eknaten. Yeah. Eknaten, yeah. Yeah, and he's such a fascinating character. I mean, we got a few minutes, so I want to. Um, this theory has pretty much been torpedoed by by um, most archaeologists, but there's still some possibilities there. All right, we we're, I'm sure we've all seen the movie The Ten Commandments, where Yul Brenner is Pharaoh Ramses and Moses and the Israelites must not leave Egypt. I mean, that's got to be one of my favorite movies. It's corny. I love it. It's it's it was Hollywood <laughs> at its biggest and most opulent sword and sandal epics. But when you study religion, study faith, there is the book of Exodus. And that is where the Hebrews, um, under the leadership of Moses and his brother Aaron, get the Pharaoh of Egypt who has, and basically the, the, the wicked Pharaoh of Exodus has been um, the most likely suspect is Ramses II, which is the pharaoh that Yul Brenner um, played so beautifully in the Ten Commandments, possibly uh, Ramses' son, Merentah. So for people of faith, if you accept that there was a wicked pharaoh of Exodus, then you also have to accept that there was the good pharaoh who, generations before that, let Joseph and the Hebrews into Egypt. You know, we all know the story of Joseph and his his brothers, or I think it was 12 brothers, and and Joseph had the many-colored coat, and they conspired against him, and and uh, they were going to kill him, but they didn't, and they sold him into slavery in Egypt, and he had the gift of dream interpretation, and he ended up in Pharaoh's prison, and then the Pharaoh of Egypt kept having a disturbing dream of seven fat cows emerging from the Nile River, only to be devoured by seven skinny cows seven plump ears of corn emerging from the Nile only to be devoured by seven skinny ears of corn. 
and and none of the viziers, none of the magicians or astrologers of Egypt could could understand the dream and interpret it for Pharaoh, but they knew that the Hebrew Joseph had the gift of discernment and prophecy, and he interpreted this for Pharaoh as there will be seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. And so that good Pharaoh elevated Joseph to grand vizier status, second in power only to to Pharaoh himself. Now, it is very possible that Akhenaten may have been this good Pharaoh. Why? Because suddenly Akhenaten is a monotheist, believing in one God. And what did the Hebrews believe in? One God. And so there is speculation among some biblical scholars that perhaps Akhenaten was influenced by Joseph and, of course, put his Egyptian spin on things, but he very well may have been the good pharaoh of the Bible. And then there's the wicked pharaoh who, of course, you know, let the Hebrews go and then got walloped by um, the Red Sea parting by God, who, had, you know, at the time in Hollywood was, you know, Cecil B. DeMille. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm joking there, but, but if you're taking, a, but, <laughs> it's all, but if, everything is interrelated. Have you noticed? Isn't, isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, but I, anyway, I thought that you'd find that, that, um, interesting. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but that certainly could have, but, you know, they have found, uh, they've actually found, um, uh, his, his, uh, his, um, mummy. And it, it it he does look like a Hebrew. Um, they they have found his, his Joseph's uh, mummy, and he looks like a Hebrew. It's quite amazing. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> um, there he is. It's it, to be looking at his historical figure from out of the Bible is quite an extraordinary thing. And his wife, and and uh, who of course was Egyptian, and I. Everything all comes together. I can't tell you how extraordinary it is to be to see historical people and and to be able to look at their faces. We I can't I am so we have to have you back, Mark, because I so love talking to you and we've come to the end of our time. I just want to know the afterlife frequency has done really well. Tell us about that. Um, I'm so humbled and honored by how well the Afterlife Frequency has done its maintained bestseller status uh, on Amazon. It was recommended by film icon Shirley MacLaine. It was designated one of the top 16 books about faith in God, and other authors on that list included the Dalai Lama. I mean, that was that was uh, very overwhelming. It has been submitted for and was considered for a Pulitzer Prize, and it won uh, the gold award uh, first place at the uh, Coalition of Visionary Resources in the fields of, of reincarnation and afterlife and, and grief. So it's an award-winning book. It's done extremely well, and um you know, I, I cannot thank everyone enough for, for all their support. It's been recommended as a must-have book by the International Association of Near-Death Studies. It's recommended by the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. It's recommended by Helping Parents Heal. And uh, it's uh, been featured in uh, so many different publications. And I, I'm just very, very, like I said, humbled and, and honored at the reception to my book, The Afterlife Frequency, The Scientific Proof of Spiritual Contact and How That Awareness Will Change Your Life. And we are just delighted to have you here. And we're feeling a little shivers from all of this uh, scary stuff. And uh, in the Halloween season, it's just a wonderful thing to be able to talk about things that are just a little bit scary. But we're going to have we're going to have Mark back again. Um, again, Mark Anthony, thank you so much for being here again today, dear. Thank you, Roberta. It's an honor. And to all your listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to Roberta. She's awesome. <laughs> Everyone, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for being with us. And please never forget that you are a powerful, eternal being. You never began, you never will end. And when you fully grasp all the implications of that, 
It's going to change everything in your life for the better. Next week, our guest will be Dr. Mark Halpern, who is going to discuss with us his recent book, which is called Coherence Revolution. This is actually something everyone needs. It's right across the board from politics, actually, especially politics, right through health to spiritual matters in every aspect of our lives. We used to call it getting our act together. And I think I think you're going to like this. So please join us next week. And this week, of course, our wonderful friend, the leading mental medium, Mark Anthony, the psychic lawyer, has been with us for the sixth time with a special Halloween program. Mark's latest book is called The Afterlife Frequency, and it's doing, as you see, very well. I might say it's enjoying high coherence. The greatest program our world faces, problem rather, our world faces today is that so few people truly understand and know for certain that our lives really, truly are eternal. In truth, nobody ever, ever dies. People like Mark and me like to have fun with that fact. But the glorious truth remains. It's impossible for you ever to die. And it's important that you learn that fact as soon as possible. So it's time once again for us to mention the fact that Seek Reality Online is your one-stop resource for all things death and the afterlife. Just go to seekreality.com and start to learn for yourself what really, really is going on. And the fact that you truly are a powerful, eternal being. It is impossible for you to die. Seekreality.com is your reality one-stop source for learning that your reality really is eternal. And now it's time to say, there's no more time for me to tell you about my books, but you know what they are. This has been Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Please enjoy, please make the most of this coming week in our one reality, always knowing that you are a powerful, eternal being, and you in particular in all the universe, you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes. Roberta blogs and answers questions at robertagrimes.com. Join us every week as we explore what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about the one reality we all share. Knowing the truth changes everything.